Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right. right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is trying hard to be authentic. This is a conversational entertainment. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy, reporting to you from Los Angeles, California. And uh, today's guest is Michael Reynolds. He's the editor-in-chief of Europa Editions, an excellent independent press. And uh, his appearance on today's program will hopefully be one among many by editors in the business of publishing. People who work on that side of the line. I've obviously spoken with a lot of writers. Almost 200 at this point. And uh, I've decided that it would probably be of interest and of benefit uh, to you, the listeners, if I have conversations with people who work in the book business uh, in other capacities. And I've done a little bit of this already. And I guess what I'm saying is I'm going to do more. So Michael Reynolds and I are going to be talking in just a moment. Before we get there, uh, I have a short story to tell regarding my own little publishing experiences. I was thinking about uh, blurbs the other day. 
and how inauthentic uh, they almost always are. The, like the favor trading that goes on, uh, the insincerity, and also the self-promotional aspect, which doesn't get you know talked about all that much. And what I mean by that is I, I think that a lot of the time uh, people are giving blurbs not to help the author or the book in question necessarily, but rather the, uh, to help themselves, to cross-brand, <laughs> cross-branding. I hate that word. Uh, and, and you know what I mean by blurbs, right? Everyone knows this. The little quotes on the back of a, of a book jacket that say really nice things about the book and the author of the book. So, you know, when you work in this world and you read about publishing a lot and you know people in publishing and you talk to people in publishing a lot, sometimes you can see the gears of the machine turning. You can you know, connect the dots and you can understand how the favors got traded in the first place. So, you know, there I was the other day, sitting at my desk, thinking about uh, these kinds of things, feeling uh, critical, hostile, and somehow uh, removed from uh, this grim but seemingly necessary process. And it occurred to me in that moment that, you know, over the past few years, I've been very happy about the fact that Jim Carroll, uh, the late, great Jim Carroll, blurbed my novel. And you know who Jim Carroll is, like the, the Basketball Diaries uh, and the, the song People Who Died, etc. So Jim Carroll blurred my book, and uh, I realized the other day, that ever since it happened, I've never really questioned it. I've never really taken a moment to investigate whether or not it's complete bullshit. <laughs> uh, I've always believed it, 100%. And he gave me a long blurb, too. It was like one of those mini-paragraph blurbs. And uh, he called my novel, among other things, and I quote, a perfect book about what we in the world are becoming. A perfect book. And so naturally, I, I believed this to be true at the time. Or, you know what, actually, I don't think I ever really believed it, but I, I wanted to. And uh, I remember experiencing a tremendous surge of optimism in the aftermath of the blurb. And I remember my editor sent me the news via email, and I was elated. Like, these were heady times. And uh, in my daydreams, in the aftermath of the blurb, I remember feeling, uh, like, distantly associated with Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark uh, Wahlberg, who starred in the film adaptation of The Basketball Diaries. Ah. <laughs> uh. This is not, I mean, I hate to even admit this because it's sort of true. I, I think I remember uh, imagining Jim Carroll, who was like in his 50s at the time. I, I had this thing in my head where, you know, he was good friends with uh, Leonardo and Mark, who were like in their mid-20s at the time. And uh, I envisioned him calling them up and telling them about my book. And then from there, you know. Uh, the fantasies escalated. I imagine being invited to uh, exclusive pool parties 
in the Hollywood Hills. But of course this, uh, you know, this never happened. So there I am, uh, at my desk entertaining this train of thought about my blurb. And, uh, I decide to investigate and I find myself Googling Jim Carroll and then reading something that was printed in the New York times, uh, shortly after he passed away, uh, you know, which wasn't that long ago. He died, uh, at the relatively young age of 60 and he died on September 11th, 2009 in New York at home, uh, in a tiny apartment. And, uh, apparently he was at his desk. He was working and, uh, he had a heart attack, you know, but he had been in poor health for years. He was in very poor health at the end of his life. So, uh, according to this New York times article, a neighbor of his, uh, happened to be, uh, quote, like peering into the window at the precise moment that he slumped over at his desk. That's what this article said, which seems very strange to me. Like a, the timing of it. You know, uh, to to look in the window at that precise moment. And then B, uh, like, who is this neighbor peering? When's the last time you peered into your neighbor's window? Seems a little creepy. Anyway, he passed away. And uh, another interesting detail is that the uh, in this article is that the only decorations in his apartment at the time uh, were a poetry event poster and a photo triptych of Kurt Cobain. That's what it says. So the point is, as I was reading uh, what was essentially an obituary, down toward the bottom, there was talk of Jim's literary agent, Betsy Lerner, who happens to be a colleague of my agent. She's essentially my agent's mentor and has been since I've had my agent. So when I read this, uh, suddenly everything clicked into place and I realized how I'd gotten my Jim Carroll blurb. I mean, it seems obvious. I haven't verified this with my agent, but it seems that Betsy called in a favor for Aaron, my agent. Like she, like she didn't even really call in the favor for me. She did it for Aaron, you know, primary motive. And that's to Betsy's credit. She's just trying to help her friend out. I don't blame her at all. But, uh, the reality is it almost certainly had nothing to do with me or my book or or very little to do with me or my book. Uh, another way of putting it, I'd be shocked if Jim Carroll actually read my novel. A perfect book. (laughs) about what we in the world are becoming. And, you know, it's possible that Jim didn't even really write the blurb. (laughs) That happens too. More than you would think that happens. Authors get asked for blurbs. Uh, You know, it's a favor trading thing. And they'll say something like, yeah, you can use my name. Just write something. I don't have the time. I'll approve it. Fuck. I thought I was going to get to hang with Leo. (laughs) 
And and this was back in his salad days, you know. This was the old school when he was running around town with his buddies, Toby Maguire, and like uh, what's that guy's name? David Blaine. <laughs> I think they could, didn't they call themselves the Pussy Posse? Like they'd they'd go to a club and you know there'd be supermodels everywhere, and David Blaine would be doing street magic. I thought I was going to get to hang. No, the, the grandeur of delusions, the grandeur of delusions. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Anyway, my guest, once again, is Michael Reynolds. I'm very happy to have him here on the program. He's the editor-in-chief of Europa Editions, uh, an excellent independent press, one of the most respected indies in the business. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, I hope you get something out of it. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Michael Reynolds. I'm sitting in the Europa Editions office, uh, which is on West 29th Street in Manhattan, looking south out my window. Okay, so but now Europa Editions didn't used to be based, or did, did it always have a New York office? So I remember, you know, we were just talking before we came on about Rome. So talk a little bit about uh, its migrations. Sure, it has always had a New York office. We used to be down in Union Square um, and moved up to 29th Street a couple of years ago. But the company was born actually from an idea, uh, out of an idea from two uh, Italians, an Italian couple, Sandra Ferry and Sandra Ozzola. Um, Sandra and Sandra are the owner publishers of an indie press in Italy called Edizione EO, uh, which has been active since, uh, since the late 70s. And uh, about Ten years ago, I guess now, they recognized that the U.S. market for books was uh, suffering from a 
a paucity of, of quality works of fiction by international authors and decided to do something about it, and Europe Editions was born. But we still, the, the, the owners themselves are, are still in Rome, and we have a, an office in Rome, and I worked out of the, the Rome office for the first uh, four years, five years of uh, my, my career with Europe Editions. Uh, I was in that Rome office and moved over to New York only three years ago. Oh, okay. So we have we have a foot in uh, in America and and the other foot in Europe. That sounds. This is this is this all sounds like sort of wonderful. You got to work in Rome. Now you're living in New York. Like, <laughs> yeah. Was it great? Was living in Rome a lot of fun? Living in Rome is great. I mean, it's a, it's a very uh, vibrant and exciting place. I, I have to say, and I apologize first to all of my friends in Rome, that certainly visiting Rome, being there as a tourist is one thing, and living there is quite another. Um, there, there are all kinds of difficulties with uh, just the, the things that you need to do in life uh, take uh, uh, quite a lot longer in Rome, <laughs> particularly anything that has any sort of bureaucratic, uh, elements to it. Well, yeah, you know, uh, I, like I just, you know, I've been there as a tourist, and I just remember getting around because the streets are not there, there's not a grid the way that there is, for instance, in Manhattan. It's, too, it's no, it's not old. at all. So getting, oh, no. I just remember looking at my map and being like, you know, perpetually confused. And then right. my <laughs> if, wife, any, if anything, the grid is is vertical. Yes, because there are the various different strata of, uh, of of Roman history and Roman life there. That uh, is also, you know, one of the great challenges of Rome because they've been trying to trying to put in a, a third subway line for about forty years now, and every, every time they they dig, they find and, uh, you know, ruins, more ruins, and somebody's house from the, the you know, the 100 years B.C. and things like that. Yeah. So, okay, so let's talk, because you know, I've read up a little bit on uh, about you in preparation for this, and I know that you took, as so many people do who wind up in publishing, and, and particularly on the indie side of the ledger, uh, a, a circuitous route to where you are now. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about your history and how you got to where you are at this point? Well, um, I, I was born in Australia and left when I was 21 uh, for the great big world outside of Australia um, and ended up in California for a few years. Uh, and from California, m moved around a little bit, went to Scotland, to France for a little while. And uh, all that while I was uh, you know, doing whatever sort of jobs came my way. Um, and then with my wife at the time, we, we moved to Boston. Um, and I spent five years in Boston where I was teaching and doing a variety of things there as well. And from Boston, I, uh, after my separation, I, I was looking for sort of an antidote to, uh, to Boston uh, and thought that Rome might be it. So I, I moved to Rome, uh, and once there, I, I, uh, the first couple of years I was I was teaching, but I, I didn't particularly enjoy teaching in Rome very much. I didn't enjoyed it very much while I was in Boston, but didn't like it too much when I, I got to Rome. Um, and after a couple of years there with uh, two friends that I had made, we uh, created a uh, festival, a literary festival, um, that was focusing on, on international voices, in that case bringing uh, a lot of Anglo-American writers to, to Italy and pairing them with prominent Italian authors. 
and uh, doing events in theaters and bookstores and all kinds of things. It was great fun. It was doing, it was going very, very well. Um, we'd had a, a few good years. And uh, around about that time, I, I, I got wind of what uh, Sandro and Sandro were planning to do with Europe Editions. I, I'd met many of the writers who were um, active in, in Italy at the time, and I knew many of the publishers. And so through them, I, I heard what was happening and, and just sort of went and knocked on the door and said, I said, well, perhaps I can be of some help. Um, and at the time they were, I, I remember it was, uh, it was September of 2004, and I think they were, they were planning to go to the Frankfurt Book Fair, which, of course, is the big, um, you know, the big industry fair, international industry fair. Uh, and at Frankfurt, they were planning to launch uh, Europe Editions, but they had very little prepared um and so i was brought on immediately i think the day after i came and saw them as uh, as a copywriter for some of their their promotional material uh and from there one thing led to another um and i, I ended up uh, abandoning the literary festival uh, or leaving it in the capable hands of my two friends um uh, who ran it for another couple of years and then uh, and then it folded uh, and then I started working full time for Europa. Um, I guess my route is a little bit more circuitous than that, but I, I don't know if I should go into all <laughs> all that nonsense. Well, I, mean, uh, I just remember, I remember in something you had written, you were talking yeah. about all the various jobs you've had, and it's, it's you know, uh, yeah, it's kind yeah. of it's kind of a common story actually in publishing, like both for writers and people, you know. I think it is, and I think you're right when you say it, it's particularly common in independent publishing. And I think I actually think it's one of the the um, you know the, the the added values of of, uh, of independent publishers. Many of the people who are working in independent publishing come from strange places, um, and they they bring their experiences to bear in their in their work. They tend to be very flexible. They tend to be able to. Um, inhabit various different contexts rather than just one alone rather whether it be the editorial context or the sales or the public relations and publicity and whatnot um, so they tend to be very flexible and very smart and 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 great readers because they're as I said they're bringing a, a lot of uh, different experiences to bear when they read um, and when they think about books and think about how people read them and and, and how people perceive them so I actually think it's a, it's actually a terrific thing in uh, in uh, independent publishing that you get uh, you know all of these people from different walks of life. Well, yeah, you hear a lot of like stories where it almost it's almost like an accident, you know. It's like, yeah, yeah. I was, I, they were doing something entirely different, and then their friend knew a friend, and suddenly yeah. they're running in a, you know they're running a, a press. <laughs> yeah, and I say, I mean, I say, I meet a lot of young people now coming into publishing, and they're, you know, they they decided at age sixteen that they wanted to work in publishing. I don't think I even knew that the, the field existed at the age of sixteen. <laughs> I just I just wrote their books and stuck a bit of glue on the edge and got them out there into the stores and you read them um so it didn't really occur to me until later in life that it was until later in life that it was a um an area that would interest me um so it's been quite a, a, a pleasant discovery okay so and you talked about and forgive me if i'm uh, missing names but you went and knocked on sandro and sandra's door yeah like you you really did that you sought them out found their address and knocked or did you did you get a meeting some other way like how how did it actually go down they had a buzzer Okay, so you went and buzzed. Yeah, them. yeah. <laughs> so, so at that point in your life, I mean, you know, uh, you're not somebody like you say who, at the age of 16, was on this track and you know had it all sort of plotted. 
but at what point in your life did you start to think that books were going to be it and that you could be a factor on the editorial side? Well, I think when I, when I started working for them, honestly, um, I mean, I'd, I'd been doing some work with some literary magazines um, before that, um, but, you know, it was bit work and it was occasional, and, and I, I really didn't think too much about that being a, a career for me. Uh, but, you know, working with Sandra and Sandra, and I think it's to their credit that they, they rec- not only me, but they, you know, you know they, they, they recognize that this attribute of, of coming from various different uh, experiences can give something to their enterprise, that it gives something to the, to the publishing house. Um, m- most of my colleagues um, uh, here and in, in, in the Rome office, certainly in the Rome office, uh, it's a very international office and they, 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 they come from uh, experiences that are extraneous to, to publishing. Um, and I think Sandra and Sandra uh, are, are able to recognize that and recognize how to, uh, you know, how to take advantage of that and how to steer someone towards their uh, realizing their, their, their talents. Well, and just the fact, I mean, the fact that you've lived in so many different places, like, uh, which I envy, you know, you talked about, mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that that, I think that can help a person bring a lot to bear in any, any line of work. I think that maybe on the, uh, maybe in this country, it's not valued nearly as much as, uh, well, you know, and, and you said, you know, you're from Australia. I feel like mm-hmm. Aus- Australian people, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I often in my travels run into Australians who are out for like a year. It's very common. Yeah. It's, a, it's, yeah. like, it's like a national thing where Australians, yeah. they go travel for a long time and they see the world. And um, I, think that's, I think that's a good thing. Mm. Well, you don't think it's as common in, with, uh, with, with Americans? Well, I mean, I think, I, you know, I've, I think some, some Americans obviously travel really well, but there's some sort of really depressing statistic about how few Americans even have a passport. And, mm. you know, I know that there's a socioeconomic, um, you know, aspect to that. So some people just can't mm. afford to travel. But right. uh, I also think that there's um, an insularity and a lack of outward looking. I mean, you talked about the paucity of... Um, international authors, uh, mm. uh, you know, finding readerships in the United States. There, you mm. know, I, I don't think that that necessarily means that there aren't readers here who are interested in those kinds of books. But the fact that there is that hole in the market says something, doesn't it? I mean, yes, I suppose it does. I mean, just speaking to the, to the question of Australians, uh, I, I mean, our, our, our distance from. Um, well, it's not right to say the rest of the world, but um, you know, Australia has a very odd history. We, we, we're essentially in, you know, a Southeast Asian country, an Asian country, but um, uh, settled a couple of hundred years ago by, by Europeans. So the, the, there is a little bit of a sense that our, our point of reference, and that was true certainly when I was going to school, our point of reference was, was uh, the Northern Hemisphere, it was England, it was Europe. Um, and, and so you, you feel the distance from, uh, from the Northern Hemisphere growing up in Australia, at least when I grew up. Uh, so I think a lot of people left uh, Australia and, and left for long periods in order to, in some way, connect to a part of their culture that um, that, that that was missing, yeah, that was that was far from them, so they had to go and find it and bring, maybe bring it back to them, uh, bring it back with them to Australia, and you know, the, I, I essentially did the same thing. I thought, well, I'll leave for a couple of years and come back and see what uh, what's going on, and, and just never went back. <laughs> now, where <laughs> and where in Australia are you from? 
I'm from a town called Wollongong, which is uh, south of Sydney, about an hour and a half south of Sydney. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, I don't know. I feel like, you know, I feel like more Americans need to, should get out. And I think people in general, the more people that travel to different countries, the better off the world is. <laughs> yeah, I think you might be true. I think you might be true. I've also met lots of travelers who, um, you know, their, their, their travels and their experiences were like water off a duck's back. So I think you also have to have the right, um, you have to be in the right place mentally and, and, and emotionally for those experiences really to sink in or maybe you know maybe they even if they don't immediately seem like they are sinking in maybe uh, years hence they do I don't know mm-hmm. um, but you know I, I, I'm sometimes a little bit suspicious of the idea that um, you know just traveling is enough to open your mind um, although I think that if your mind is, is tending towards opening I think it can be a great thing yeah 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 I mean it can, it can kind of force your hand a little bit you know yeah throw yourself yeah, yeah. into a foreign environment but yeah. logistically i think a lot of people look at like what you did like i'm going to pack up and i'm going to move to rome um right. you know they right. look at that logistically and say that well, that can't be done like i like is it how did you do it you know what i'm saying you just you just went you yeah. bought a ticket I, I i suppose that that has you know having done that a couple of times in my life it's it, um it, it does have an impact because i um you know, three years ago, I moved myself and my family out of it to New York. And although uh, it, it took a lot of work and a lot of preparation, uh, I, I've since run into a lot of people. So I, w- I would never do that. I would never be able to do that. Um, and, you know, when I, when I moved from Boston to Rome, I, I just sort of decided to speak a word of Italian um, and, and just sort of decided to go there, thinking that it was, would be the right place for me. Um, and, it, it, you know, done something similar. I think when I, when I first left Australia, uh, the impetus was to leave Australia. I wasn't, I wasn't drawn in any particular direction. Um, and I, I had a friend who, who had plans to spend six months in California, so I thought I'll tag along um, and end up spending five years there. But from California, then went to Scotland, lived in Scotland for a little while. So I think, yeah, I think having, you know, pulled up uh, roots uh, as they are and moving to another spot um, probably has made it more easier for me to think about doing the same in the future. There's also a danger of that. There's also things, I mean, things get um, challenging and tough and difficult at times wherever you are. And uh, having sort of moved a few times, there's always the temptation to think, well, if I just, you know, pull up and move somewhere else, everything will be better. But, uh, you know, that, that's not, not, uh, not, not the case. <laughs> right. Well, so you think you're in New York for a little while at least? I think so. I think so. I mean, we, I, I was coming here so often for work, it was a known quantity for me. I knew what I was getting into. I knew more or less what uh, my job would be here and uh, how life would be here. But what I didn't know was how uh, or whether the, the, my family would enjoy it here, my kids and my, uh, my, my girlfriend. And, uh, you know, they're having a great time. They're enjoying school. They're making friends and uh, my my partner has her own uh, business now, so you know things are going quite well. Cool. Okay. Well, let's talk about publishing and the state yes. the state of publishing. I've had you know I've had almost all uh, authors on this program, yeah. and I've kind of made the decision that it would be a good idea to talk to some people on the editorial side of the line, people who work, uh, you know, in publishing as publishers. Yeah. And, you know, things, when you talk to writers, um, a lot of the time things can seem really bleak. You know, it can be, it's very difficult. 
to to make it. It's very difficult to make a living, even if you have critical success. I mean, you know all of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the business itself, uh, the book business itself, has undergone you know well documented changes. Um, you know, in terms of the digital revolution, in terms of the uh, you know the streamlining of uh, bricks and mortar stores, to mm-hmm. say the least. So. What is your assessment of the business right now? Do you have like a broad assessment? Well, I, th- I think the most important um, part of that question are the words right now, because it seems to me that um, if not every day, then uh, you know at least every week uh, something dramatic is happening in the world of publishing, um, and so the, the, the changes are many and uh, and uh, and deep. I think at, 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 in this moment. Um, I, you know, I, I see things from the point of view of a, of, of a small independent publisher, uh, and I think that it's not such a bad time for, um, or not such a challenging time for independent publishers. I think that, uh, you know, the, the, I was talking about this a couple of days ago on a, at a, on a panel that, you know, a few years ago there were around about 250,000 books published in America so in, in over a year. Um, and a couple of years after that, there were close to 350,000 books published by traditional publishers and about the same amount self-published. Um, and that's not counting, you know, the various different sort of chat books and uh, books printed on Expresso book machines and online writing where, you know, things are, are also very, very interesting. And so I think that there's somewhere close, nobody really knows anymore, but there's somewhere close to uh, probably a million titles, a million books published in this country every year uh, in one way or another. And so you know, that, that, that poses, uh, I, I think that the, the whole sort of process of publishing has been turned on its head in, in as much as getting something printed, getting something out, making it available uh, is probably easier than ever. I don't think it's ever been um, you know, more accessible to, to have a book uh, printed and done and out there and edited and and uh, and, and have it available in, in one form or another. Uh, and the real problem now is is the, the 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 question or the real challenge at the moment is the question of discoverability. How are you going to discover um, what's good? How's a reader going to 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 know what um, what they should read next? And I, I think that independent publishers, because we, um, you know, we, we we put so much effort into our brand and to and into curating a um, a particular kind of conversation with our readers or facilitating a particular kind of conversation between our writers and our readers. I think that independent publishers are are, are are stepping up and they are becoming in themselves through their brand, through the books they publish, a kind of discovery mechanism because they have a, a specific identity, a personality that readers can understand and appreciate or not, but but at least it's understandable and it's out there. Uh, so so I, I tend to think that for independent publishers, it's not such a, a bad time. Obviously, there, there, there are forces at work that you know, make it difficult. The fact that um, the bricks and mortar stores are, are, are fewer, although that, that seems to be changing a little bit as well, in terms, at least in terms of the independent booksellers. 
there's an, there's an, uh, you know, a slight increase in the in the number of independent booksellers at the moment. Um, well, and, and just I mean, just to interrupt yeah. because it, <clears throat> I think it goes hand in hand with what you were just saying about independent presses versus the corporate uh, publishers. Yeah, you know, there could be an emerging market. Like on the, you know, to be a, a to strike a more optimistic note, there could be. Uh, an emerging market for independent booksellers that curate in much the same way that independent presses do. Do you know, like they in in terms sure. of in terms of catering yeah. to the local community and understanding who their customers are? And uh, absolutely, I mean, I think that that's what all of the the successful and 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 very good independent booksellers are, are doing now. Even I mean, they're 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 brilliant. They're geniuses at understanding their community and understanding. Uh, what they need to have in their store, um, and I think that sort of extreme curation will probably increase in the in the future. I remember that there was a, there's not uh, an Italian uh, writer by the name of Alessandro Baricco, um, who uh, was based in in Turin in Italy, and he is a very successful writer and, and was doing various other things. He had a school of creative writing, and he opened a bookstore in Turin. Where uh, in that bookstore, only one title was present for the whole month. <laughs> the bookstore was full of just one book, um, and then it would change at the end of the month, and a new book would go. Now, I think that's probably stretching things a little too far. Um, no, but the idea, the, the idea behind it, and the, you know, the, the the concept is is not mistaken. I think for 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 today's realities. Well, it makes makes it easy on people, and it's funny that you mention it because uh, my guest on yes, on the episode that just went up recently, uh, I did an interview with Ken Bauman, who um, mm. he lives in Los Angeles, and he and I were having a conversation, not on this show, but just uh, you know getting together for a drink or whatever, and we were talking about doing uh, some kind of like almost like an art exhibit where you had a different author come in for a week at a time and do just that like pick one right. book or two books right. or whatever it was and right. people could right. come in and see what this person selected and you know maybe interact with them but basically that would be it something like ultra simple you know yeah 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 i think that's true and whatever who's in um, emily books i'm not sure if you're familiar with them that, that there's a similar idea behind that the, the sense of really um you know curating your selection and reaching out to a specific audience it's that that sort of thing is um you know, it's challenging, I think, for a publisher like us because we're one of the differences, I think, between Europe editions and some of the um, uh, other presses that do a lot of work in translation or do a lot of international fiction. That they they really are going after a niche audience. I think one of the uh, innovations that we brought to the to the publishing of international fiction is that we're very much looking for a general audience, a general reader, um, not that reader who uh, may be interested in a book simply because it is in translation. Um, so you know we're we're, we're certainly not um, going to ignore that niche audience, and I think they're, they're they're an important group of readers for us. But we always have sort of gone after a general reader. Um, Yes. <laughs> okay, I was going to say because, like, you were talking about how independent publishers have, um, you know, you, you have maybe a, a stronger sense of of brand identity as opposed yeah. to corporate publishers, which publish, you know, a, a huge range of uh, different kinds of books, and you know, you yeah. have from from the very uh, highbrow to 
the middle brow to the low. So when you talk about the Europa Editions brand identity, you have, you've alluded to, you know, obviously international voices, and you talked mm-hmm. about wanting to get to a general reader. Um, mm-hmm. But is there anything else that you think would um, need to be said about what your identity is and, and, and maybe talk a little bit about Tonga as well as being mm-hmm. a, an, sure. imprint, an, an imprint that might be more familiar to American readers? Yeah. Well, I mean, Tonga was, a, was a, uh, you know, is a, is a great uh, part of our history. I think we'd, you know, we'd, uh, our, our very first book that we published back in 2005 was a book called The Days of Abandonment by an Italian author, uh, Elena Ferrante. Uh, and it was tre- tremendously satisfying because it ended up on, on uh, several bestseller lists. And it was, you know, it was terrific to be with our first book, uh, to be out with, uh, to have it become a bestseller. Um, it was a bit of a bit of a curse as well because it, we, we thought, well, this is easy, and we just publish our books and they become bestsellers. <laughs> right, right. Nothing to it, right? Um, and of course, it's not easy at all. Uh, and we learned that soon enough. And uh, but you know, we 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 published at that point a um, you know, our first book was by an Italian author. It did really really well. Uh, a year later, we had another book that did tremendously well uh, by a British author, Jane Gardam. Uh, who has continued to publish with us and every book that she publishes, she's just had one out last week, a couple of weeks ago called Last Friends that hit uh, many of the bestseller lists. Um, we then had, you know, an, an amazing thing happen when we published The Elegance of the Hedgehog, right. um, which, you know, became our, our first uh, New York Times bestseller and just sold uh, lots and lots of copies and, we, you know, we, we was a favorite over the, the holiday seasons for several years <laughs> with readers and booksellers and, um, you know, there was a, that was an extraordinary moment, and, and there was a, a point at which we said, "Well, you know, we, we've done um, we've done a, a, a book that's gone really well commercially speaking by an Italian author. We've done another by a British, another by a French. We'd published a, um, a German author successfully, uh, but publishing American authors had always been part of the program with Europe editions from sort of very early days." Uh, Sandra and Sandra teamed up with uh, uh, Kent Carroll, a, a publishing veteran uh, here in, in, in America. He'd been with Grove Press for many years and then had his own company, Carroll and Graf. And Kent um, made a suggestion to Sandra and Sandra that was, uh, you know, I, I think was really the, the, the turning point for Europe Editions because he suggested that if we wanted to be a truly international publisher, we also had to publish American authors and British and Australian Anglo authors because, uh, you know, that's what an international publisher uh, ought to do. Uh, and so the fact that we hadn't been able yet to publish with any significant success uh, an American author uh, was um, a little bit galling, yeah, because it was very much a part of the um, a part of the program. And at that point, um, Alice Siebel, the, the the author of um, uh, Lovely Bones and uh, Lucky and The Almost Moon. Uh, sort of came to our rescue, and it's a, I mean, it's a quite a great story because Alice had had been a friend of uh, Sandra and Sandra's for for some time, and had always been really supportive of Europa. Um, and le- legend has it, at least legend has it, that Sandra and Sandra were visiting Alice in San Francisco, and they were at a at a bar in the Fairmont Hotel at a strange place called the Tonga Room. Um, sure, yeah. Yeah, 
And, uh, you know, Sandra and Sandra were talking to Alice about this difficulty that we were having, and, and she came up with this brilliant idea that um, she could curate a list of, of books for us. And it, was, you know, it was, truly was brilliant, because here you had a, an America, a prominent American author who would apply her tastes as, as a reader and her, her talent as an editor uh, to bring new American voices to, to, to readers here in the States. Um, and we ended up, uh, as you know, calling the, the, the imprint Tonga Books in honor of the place where um, you know where Alice got drunk enough to suggest such a thing, <laughs> um, and she turned out to have exceptional tastes. And the, and the first book that we published with Tonga Books gave us our second New York Times bestseller. Uh, as you deserve nothing by an author that I think you've had on your show, right, yeah. Alexander Maxick? Yeah, I've known I've known Xander for years. He's a buddy of mine. He was what <laughs> he was one of the original writers at the Nervous Breakdown. So, all right, there you go. So, um, and you know that, that that was fantastic, obviously, because there we'd we'd um, you know we'd we'd not only published a terrific book, and um, uh, Xander was was great to work with, but we'd, we'd also. Uh, shown that we can uh, publish American authors successfully. Well, and I want to talk to you about the the model because I remember yeah. re- I remember reading about this when it was announced. The press release went out or whatever that Alice was going to be helming this imprint or curating for a while, and mm. um, it struck me as a really good idea uh, because mm. you know the challenge so often in publishing, you know, obviously it's it's a challenge to publish any book well, but. Mm. There's a lot of there is a lot of talent out there. There are a lot of strong writers out there, and uh, as I'm sure you well know, there are plenty of really, really good books and really, really good authors who, for whatever reason, don't get the readership that they deserve. And so the challenge is marketing. The challenge is getting the word out and, and making the books, um, you know, uh, known to readers who might be interested in them. So. When you have somebody like Alice, uh, who's got such a high profile in the in the world of books in America, with all the success she had, in particular with the Lovely Bones, to have somebody like that curating seems like a really good idea under present circumstances. And I've sort of seen that replicated. I mean, uh, to maybe uh, not such a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Highbrow extent, or I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, the words fail me, but. You know, there's like, uh, you know, you have like Chelsea Handler has a oh, sure, yeah. Johnny Depp. Yeah. I want to say Johnny, Johnny Depp. Does yeah, Johnny, Johnny Depp. Yeah. He's going to be yeah. running his own publishing imprint. And so, you right. know, I run a little my, uh, independent press myself. And from a marketing standpoint, you sort of envy that because, you know, whatever Johnny Depp publishes is going to get a lot of ink, you know, uh, yeah. regardless yeah, of sure. its merit. So do yeah. you, I guess a question would be, do you think that the model that you guys came up with for Tongo where you have a writer like Alice curating and helping to promote or at least lending her name to the effort. Um, and you know, the benefits that you, uh, that you get from that. Do you think that that's going to be, uh, you know, replicated more and more? Do you see that happening more and more? I mean, I, I think if, if it's done, um, you know, if it's done with, with, with taste and, and with a certain sensitivity, I, I, I think it should be replicated. It's, it's, it's a pretty terrific idea. We, benefited from you know what you're talking about essentially there is marketing and promotion we benefited a lot from um this announcement that uh a writer as prominent as alice was going to curate a few books for her was going to choose a few books for us um the the great you know that that could have gone either of two ways right um alice had never worked as an editor she had never acquired before um 
And so, you know, we had no idea, I'm sure she had no idea whether uh, the books that she chose would work on the market um, and, you know, would, would prove to be successful. Uh, but, I, you know, I do think that all, most, if not all, writers are readers first. So uh, there was a degree to which uh, we felt we could trust the instincts of a successful writer because that person is first and foremost a, a reader. Uh, and in this case, it proved to be true. You know, what, what she um, managed to, to acquire for us uh, you know, she 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 did four books with Tonga, and and each of them, in their own way, were was uh, was a success, and and they're each you know each of them is a terrific book. So, are, now, is there somebody else that's going to come in and do the curation now? Like, is it rotating, or how? We're, does it... we're we're not sure at the moment. I think the you know there was talk of uh, rotating guest editors, which I I think would be a, a really interesting idea. Uh, Alice, I felt I think. Uh, at a certain point, she felt that she was uh, she had taken on uh, taken on more than she could handle because it it, it did turn up turn out to be uh, quite a commitment. Uh, looking at all the submissions that came in, because when when it was announced, there was a real flood of submissions, um, and so she she's decided to to take a break. Uh, and so at, at the moment. You know, if, if if she decides within a year or so that she she wants to continue or acquire a couple more books, then we would be more than happy to do that. Um, and, and you know, we could do a few more books with Tonga. But I, you know, I, I think what Tonga set out to do was to show that the 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 house, the press, Europa could do this. And and since the the success of Tonga and since the, the publication of the the fourth book that Alice acquired we've been able to uh, acquire some uh, you know a couple of great american authors that we're now publishing on the main list on the europa list uh so you know, what what tonga set out to do it, it it did in in spades really it was um you know it was a tremendous success well and if and you have to or i would have to assume uh that if somebody gets picked up by tonga they're going to have uh, you know, at least a, a pretty decent shot of getting uh, published overseas, correct, on various imprints? You- yeah, that, I mean, the, the, the connection with the Italian publishing house is still very, very strong, and it's, um, you know, I, I, I hesitate even to call it a connection. I think it's part and parcel of what Europa is. So the, the idea that if we... Um, if we are interested in something for Tonga or for Europa that we think is also suitable for um, for the Italian market or for the European market, uh, we've just last year we opened up an office in London, so we're publishing into the UK as well. Uh, then we'll obviously try and you know make a play for those for those rights. Um, and I, and I think that you know, being a, a small house. Our advances are still relatively modest, so the idea of adding um, to a, a modest adva- advance the idea or, or the possibility to publish into foreign markets, which may open the door to sales in other countries, uh, you know, that's something that we can we can we can add. And when when the the book is the right book, then we can add to to our offer. So why, here's a question that you know I, I have, I've asked a lot on this show, but. I'm going to ask it again because I'd be interested to hear it, uh, you know, a perspective from the publishing side. But do you have a sense, like you mentioned uh, The Elegance of the Hedgehog earlier, which was, you know, I, I, is that the biggest seller you guys have had so far? By a long shot. Okay. Really, so so yeah. Do, you yeah. Ha- do you have a sense of why why that happened? Why does a book sell? <laughs> um, 
I mean, I, 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 in, in our case, um, and probably in all cases, really, I, I think it depends very much on, on certain characteristics within the book, uh, mysterious characteristics, because if we could figure it out, then it'd be, you know, we'd, <laughs> we'd publish one after the other. It would probably be less fun, but uh, more lucrative uh, right. profession. Um, in, in the case of The Elegance of the Hedgehog, I mean, it's a very special situation, a very special thing that happened because we were, at the time Europe Editions was three years old, we had a staff of four people. Um, and new people have asked me if things changed since then. We now have a staff of six people. So they have changed dramatically. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, we didn't and we don't have the resources that the big corporate publishers have and there was no talk of us even, you know, taking an ad out in the New York Times or anything like that. Um, we got behind that book. We felt we were onto a, um, you know, a book that could be successful for us and we're, we're excited to publish it. Uh, but our, you know, our marketing and promotion and all that was very, very limited, certainly when compared to what, um, what bigger houses do as a matter of course, even for their, for their mid-list books. Um, and when we went to, to print The Elegance of the Hedgehog, if I remember correctly, the first print run was 15,000 copies, and we, you know, we would have been ecstatic to sell all of those and go to a second printing. Um, and to date, we're, we're, you know, I think we have 900,000 copies sold of, of that book. Um, and we, you know, we, we, we heard extraordinary stories around... It was 2008. It was not a happy time in, in this country. Um, and we, we were hearing stories from booksellers, independent booksellers, particularly in the Northeast, I'm not sure, who told us um, if it had not been for the elegance of the hedgehog, our store would be out of business at this point, which, you know, that, 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 that was incredibly touching. Wow. Um, and stories coming in from, from stores all over the country saying, you know, our customers are coming in over the holiday season and buying stacks of this book to give away as gifts. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't know if even today I can necessarily explain what led to that success. I, I mean, I think it's a well-written book. I think that um, it, it has all kinds of qualities. I think it's a very sincere book, uh, but it has all kinds of strikes against it as well because, it, it, you know, it's a book in translation, which at the time, if I'm saying, no, that, that, that can never work. Um, it, 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 the, the protagonists, the main characters are not... Uh, you know, vampires or, 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 or sexual adventurers or anything that, um, uh, or intrepid archaeologists or any of the things that sort of uh, the characters that inhabit the, the typical bestsellers. There were a slightly annoying, precocious 12-year-old and, and a janitor. Um, there's not much plot to talk about in the book. It's, um, it, it's set within, uh, most of it is set in, in, inside a, a building in Paris. Um, if I had to say anything, I think that it has, um, and particularly again going back to the question of 2008, 2009, which were not happy times due to uh, you know, the economic problems, um, it has uh, an important message. I think it's a, it's a book that essentially is about the idea that we very often hide what is. Uh, what is best about ourselves for whatever reasons, for various reasons, we don't let that out. Um, and this book seemed to suggest that at a certain point, someone will come along in our lives that will 
recognize that thing in us and, and, and know how to value it. And I, I, I suppose that really struck a chord. Well, and did you know, I mean, you were there from, from start to finish on that book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So did, when did you know? Like, you know, like the, the, you do the first print run, you hit your pub date. The book arrives in stores. Like, at what point did you start to get a sense that this was? I, I guess that you know there the, there was an, a very early indication. Um, well, there were two early indications. There was one moment I remember at sales conference, um, and I actually wasn't at sales conference that year, um, but my colleague was there, and uh, it was in Arizona, the Penguin Sales Conference, um, and she had done her presentation to the reps and, and so forth, and we, we work with the, the wonderful paperback sales force at Penguin, so we had, you know, she had given her presentation to the paperback salespeople um, and was enjoying the pool. She was out at the pool, um, and uh, the other people at Penguin, the, the, you know, the hardcover uh, reps and the other salespeople uh, from Penguin had no idea who she was, and she was sitting by the pool, um, and these other people who had nothing to do with our book or our press or anything, we're talking about the elegance of the hedgehog. Um, and I believe that's what they call buzz. Yeah. <laughs> so there was this sense that there, there was something buzzing around this book. And then before we, we published in, we published in September 2008, um, the book had taken off in France and in Italy and a couple of other markets, I think, as well. So, and and they, although in in France and, and Italy they were published by much bigger publishers than than Europa, um, in both cases, the, their expectations were modest. They hadn't poured lots of marketing dollars into it or anything. They just published the book. People had started talking about it. They'd started giving it as a gift, and uh, it had taken off just by word of mouth. Um, so, you know, that, that made us very hopeful. Um, but as I said, hopeful for us at the time was selling a first print run of 15,000. Um, you know, we, we knew uh, before the book went on sale... No, that's not true. But very soon after the book went on sale, we went to a second printing based on the the orders that we were getting from bookstores. Um, they they liked the packaging, they liked what they'd read, um, and they felt they could do well with it. So we were going back to a second printing. And what you know, what it, it, there, there were sort of three moments at which the, the the sales took off for the elegance of the hedgehog. The first one was um, the holiday season after Thanksgiving. There, uh, we, we saw an, an, an incredible increase. So we, uh, now it's very hard to remember, but I think we were selling five or six hundred a week um, up to Thanksgiving, and that jumped up to two or three thousand a week over the the holiday season. Um, and then there was a, a, a wonderful. Uh, NPR segment early in um, March, I think it was, uh, and they dedicated an hour to the elegance of the hedgehog, and that was sort of the the next leap that um, that the sales took. And then the author came out as well in in April, and and that sort of coincided to another jump in sales. And from there, it stayed fairly consistent for um, the rest of the year, so for almost all of 2009. Um, and it, you know, increased again over the holiday period again. And it's still, I mean, it's still today. Um, most weeks, it's our best-selling book. Hmm. That's interesting. And and um. When you talk about sales and you talk about numbers, I mean, obviously, this book is subsidizing the publication uh, of other books. You know, you have when you run a press and you have a big success, like that big success can kind of float other other rolls of the dice. Yeah. And so when you when you take a book and you send it out to uh, 
you know, you send it to press and it goes out into stores. Like, is there a number? Like, is there? Do you have a benchmark of, of, of copies that need to sell in order for you to consider the book a success? I think. I mean, I think there the, the few too many variables. Really, obviously, it depends on whether we've uh, whether it's a book in translation. We've had to to pay for the translation. What, how much we've paid as an advance. Um, what our our expectations are for the book, but um, you know, I, 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 I don't know if there's a specific number that I could say that's the magic number for us. Um, and you know, now we're 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 at a point where um, you know we're doing more titles than we've done in the past. Um, we're up to around thirty thirty five titles a year now. Uh, at the time that we published the Elegance of the Hedgehog, I think we were doing about twenty titles a year. Uh, and so you know you're, you you've got to temper your expectations a little bit there because you're doing more books and you can't expect uh, uh, you know a, a big review or a big buy from a store on every one of those books um, and, and so, you know the, the, those expectations need to be balanced a little bit. So and as editor in chief and <clears throat> I don't mean to intrude too much into. <laughs> The nuts and bolts, but I am kind of curious, right. particularly at a um, you know independent press. Like you do thirty-five titles a year, you're the editor in chief. Like, do you have like a little equity stake in each of these books that goes out? And if one of them takes off, it's like that's great. You know, do you know what I'm saying? And, or if there's an editor that acquires, does mm. that editor get like a little piece of it? Uh, is that how we, it works? We we don't here. I mean, I think that that happens at other presses. Um, not not all of them. I think it happens at some presses. We don't here. Um, I mean, I think, you know, going back to the question of independent publishers and small independent publishers, there, there's, um, just, you know, you're, you're, you're very active showing up every day as sort of your stake in the company. You, you, it's, it, it, it's, it's not a job that you um, can stay in unless you're a, a true believer in what you're doing, um, and and you know that when when you know I don't want to sound too Pollyannish about the whole thing, but when a book that you're intimately involved in, and when again in a small press you're intimately involved with a lot of the books that you do, does well, is reviewed well, is appreciated by readers, then um, I suppose that's your bonus. Um, and you know there are times around the time of the elegance of the hedgehog. Obviously, um, there was uh, you know a, a, a little bit more flexibility in what we could uh, you, know, you know how how we could utilize our resources at that time. And uh, it, it was uh, we were flush at, the, at at that time. But I you know I, th- I think the owners were very smart as well, Sandra and Sandra, because they. Um, you know, they they said well, what this allows us, rather than you know spending half a million dollars on our next book or something ridiculous and exorbitant like that, um, it allows us continuity. It allows us to look sort of four or five years down the line, which is a real luxury in, in independent publishing. Yeah, um, I remember. I think it was Richard Nash saying um, around about the time that there were all kinds of layoffs in publishing in 2009, and he was asked for a comment, and, and his comment, I can't re- remember it verbatim, but it was more or less sort of welcome to our world. Yeah, independent publishing is always like this. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's true. So to, to have that kind of luxury is, was really... Um, you know, a, a bonus unto itself, and we all we all had greater the acquiring editors all had a greater flexibility, and we've been able to acquire great books, and uh, you know that that's that's satisfaction enough. 
Well, it's funny that you mentioned that Richard uh, that comment from Richard Nash because I've over the past several years during this like huge economic uh, crisis or downturn or depression or mm. whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the the joke for me has often been like. Oh, this is how it's always been. Like, you know? yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> like writers can writers can absorb financial calamity a lot better than most people. Like, you know, for, for right. us, this is just right. this, this, is, this is normal. This is it. <laughs> so, um, I want to ask a little bit before I let you go. I want to ask questions that I know listeners who are out there working on manuscripts or sitting on completed manuscripts um, would be interested in hearing. Okay. Uh, the answers to, or at least uh, some attempt at an answer, because you know it's it can be mysterious and it can be very frustrating for from a writer's perspective when you go out and you submit to all these different houses and you have to wonder like is anybody really reading this and you know the rejection is a part of the writer's life and so when it comes to yeses and when it comes to you know your experience editorially in, in terms of receiving submissions and how you handle them. Um, do you have advice, you know, or, or can you describe what the process is in terms of how books get to print at your press? Like, is it, is it really traditional agents submit, you read the manuscript. If you fall in love with it, you say yes. Or is it, you know, you know, somebody who knows somebody and they have good taste and you trust their taste and they hand you a manuscript and then you like it or how does it go? But both of those things. I mean, I think both. the, the, the one thing. But whenever I sort of get uh, depressed about the publishing industry and uh, what, what buoys me is the thought that almost everyone I know in, in, in publishing, uh, you know, they wake up every day and the only sort of thought in their head is, is that they would like to be involved in, in the publication of something great. That's all they want. <laughs> so this sort of demonizing publishing and editors is uh, unjust, I feel, because you know, all, we're all looking for something fantastic. That's all we want to do. Right. To, is to be involved in, in um, you know, in, in, the, in the publication of something like that. Um, so, you know, while time is is a real issue, and, and you know, I, I, I think we we all work very very hard, and um, it's very difficult to be to get back to people in time, and we're slow, and we miss deadlines, and there, there's always another deadline. Um, the, the the last thing to die is always hope, so we're always we're always open to um, to to everything and anything. Um, and if that means that it's it's an agent that we uh, we trust or one that we, we we don't even know who's contacting us for the first time, and they 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 feel and demonstrate that they know a little bit about Europe and they know the kinds of things that we've published, then there's always that little thrill that this might be it. Um, and the same is true, you know, when a manuscript comes to us through a, a writer or a friend of a friend or someone says, you know, I, I, there's this guy, he's, uh, you know, he's been, he's been slogging away at this manuscript and no one will pay any attention, but I think it's a work of, of genius and, and I mean, you, you try to be nonchalant, but you like to say, take me to this person now. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, my, 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 I, I think part of being involved in, in, in publishing is also dealing with heartbreak on a, a lot of different levels. There are, you know, most of the books that you were published as an editor, um, and you know, those books when you're at a small press like Europa, they're books that you, you, you know, you love. You, you, there's no other reason to publish if you're working at a, at a place like Europa. Other than the fact that you, you you think it's great, you think what you're reading is great, um, 
at, at other houses, I think there are all kinds of different pressures and different reasons to publish a book. Uh, but at a place like Europa, there are not. There's only one. You think it's fantastic, and you think it can succeed. Um, and the, 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 the awful truth is that most of the things that you're involved in will not succeed um, commercially to, to, to the degree that you would like. Um, so there's a lot of heartbreak, and, and there's also the, you know, you get your expectations up about a submission, um, and it turns out to be not right for you, or something that you, you're just not enjoying. Then you know that that's uh, uh, one more disappointment. Um, but then when you find, you know, when you find the thing that you you, you do love, it makes it all worthwhile. So how far, like, when you get a submission, talk a little bit about that. The, the specifics of that process. You get a submission. Are you on the subway? Reading on the way home? Like how, how far? How much? How much time and effort do you give to a submission before you decide it's not a go? Like, are you somebody who can read like three pages and know, or do you always say I'm going to give this ten pages? Or I wish I were. I mean, I wish I were. I, I usually read a little bit more, um, and I don't know if that's just a question of not um trusting my instincts enough to, to be able to decide after a couple of pages but um because I know very good editors who who are able to do that um but I usually uh, I, I actually recently I've I've sort of made a, a rule that uh, you know I'll, I'll print the first 35 pages um and I will not abandon that manuscript until I've read those 35 pages um even if it's something that you know in the first few pages I I, I feel that it's not right for us um, and then there's, you know, there, there, there are the, the next steps. So if, if I, if I really like the, the first 35 pages, then I'll read more. I, I'll say that, you know, most things that I've acquired and been enthusiastic about, I have been able to tell in the first five pages that this is going to be, um, something that I enjoy. A couple of times that, you know, uh, uh, even recently I, I, I read something through to the end I thought it was fantastic and disliked the ending <laughs> immensely and it was a book that had already been published um, elsewhere it had been out in the UK so it was not uh, you know it was, it was not going to I, I don't think it would have been appropriate to change that ending but I didn't like it at all um, and you know that's that, that's really disappointing it took me a day to recover from that one <laughs> so okay so you, you wound up declining you loved it yeah, but you hated yeah. the end and that was enough yeah. to make you step away yeah 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 So what's, can you talk about, uh, like you love something, you know, like, have you, like, what's the most fevered you've ever been? You know, like if you, you sit down, you start reading, thinking I'm going to read 35 pages of this and you, you stay up all night and you're on the phone with the agent first thing the next morning. Has that happened? We're, we're, we're doing a book. I, I, when I was invited last year to, uh, Sharjah in in the United Arab Emirates where they've done, they've recently, um, started a, a rights fair. I think it's only three years old or so. So it was, you know, it was all expenses paid. It was, it was great fun. Um, and we, they flew us out on, on Emirates Airlines and first class. And I don't know if you've ever been in first class or ever been in first class and, uh, on Emirates Airlines, but it was really impressive. Like what, uh, what was going on? I mean, I've, you know, I've never flown internationally I mean, first class. You but. know, there, there, there was, apart from the, the, um, you know, the, the seat itself, which was, you know, like a small suite. 
essentially. Um, you know, there was a bar at the back where you could gather and um, sort of hang out and free champagne and free this and free that and 700 movies and blankets and not only blankets but also um, mattresses. They would come and put your mattress down and um, get you ready for bed. It was it was just a terrific experience wow. to fly over. The fair itself was interesting. The country was interesting. And um, I was given a, a manuscript there. Uh, I handed a manuscript there, and I thought, well, I'll read this when I get back because I, you know, I really want to. It's, a, it's a, I think, a 14-hour flight back from Sharjah to New York because what I really want to do is get smashed at the bar on the way back <laughs> and then just sleep. Or because you know, this is a luxury on an international flight that you rarely get to sleep eight hours, and I knew I could do it uh, on the way back. Um, and you know, got on. I thought, well, I have a quick look at this at this book. And uh, ended up spending the entire flight. I didn't sleep a wink uh, reading this book, and I was exhausted after four days of fare. And I thought it was terrific. And and actually called the um, the rights person from the taxi issues in the UK on the way home from the airport. Um, when I got back, saying, you know, I, I I have to publish this book. It's fantastic. I love it. Um, and uh, we, were, we, we, we managed to acquire the rights and we're publishing it in, in uh, this fall as our first hardcover book as well. And what's it uh, called? It's called The Last Banquet. And the author? Uh, and the author is Jonathan Grimwood. He's a British author. Okay. Wow. Well, mm-hmm. he must have been happy. <laughs> I'm sorry, I mean, I, I, I think he was. I know that the, um, you know, the, 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 the UK publisher had uh, all kinds of plans for the sale of this book in the US, and um, you know, we, we, we had to convince them that we were the right publisher for it. Um, so you know, it was, it was an exciting story, and I'm excited to see uh, what comes of it. So I, I really think it's a, a great book. I don't, think, I don't think I've told him the story of the, 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 the flight back, but I will one day. <laughs> well, maybe he's listening. You never know. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, listen, it's been great fun talking with you and uh, really enlightening. I really appreciate it, and uh, I wish you guys well. I think you're doing uh, really good work, and uh, you know, I, I hope that you guys have a lot of good fortune in the, in the year to come. Thank you, Brad. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's Michael Reynolds. You can follow him on Twitter, where his handle is at ReynoldsMichael. You can also follow Europa Editions on Twitter, at Europa Editions. And you can visit the press online at EuropaEditions.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to get the app, the free, official, other people app. It's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. Uh, you can access premium content, the full archives, etc., all via the app. And uh, once again, the app itself is free, so go get that. Uh, all right, I hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks to Michael Reynolds, and uh, thanks to Jim Carroll. i got to give a shout-out to Jim. Regardless of why he did it, he did do it. He blurred my book, and uh, he helped my cause. That's not nothing. Right? Please remember that Joseph Conrad is buried in Canterbury and that Graham Greene never learned to drive a car. That is it for now. I'll be back again in a few days with another episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. Uh, Thank you for rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. I appreciate that. Uh, Thank you for blurbing. (laughs) Thank you for blurbing the podcast on iTunes. Would you please blurb my podcast?
I'm the king of the world, man. I'm the king of the world. (laughs) 